Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. On today's episode, we have Professor Andrew Carr. Andrew is a senior lecturer in the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the Australian National University. His research focuses on strategy, middle powers, and Australian defense policy. In this episode, Andrew and I discuss two of his papers uh, related to strategy that specifically focus on the importance of time and strategy. I, uh, I find these papers really useful, really interesting. And uh, I think uh, if you dig into them, you'll find them very useful as well. So without further ado, uh, this is Andrew Carr. This is a, really a, a fascinating topic to me that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about time and uh, how it fits within armed conflict. And I personally think that time is one of the most important but, if, uh, but overlooked elements within, uh, within warm warfare. And if you step back quickly, and you know, since uh, Napoleon just came out and everybody's trashing that movie, we'll, uh, we'll tie in some Napoleon references here when we talk about time, right? Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz. You don't see it in the movie, but it came because Marat showed, showed up at the, the perfect time with the cavalry to help save the day to, 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 to reinforce that, uh, that weakened wing that Napoleon was showing. At the same time, at Waterloo, Time is what undid Bonaparte's uh, uh, operations there, right? And so he wasn't able to, to uh, sufficiently separate um, – uh, what's the German guy's name? I just went blank. <laughs> uh, the, he wasn't able to sufficiently separate the Prussians uh, and the British in time to, uh, to seal that victory there. And so that allowed him to get defeated. You also look at the, the Battle of the Bulls, right? Patton was able to quickly uh, reorient the Third Army and slam into the southern edge of the uh, the German penetration there at uh, um, at Bastogne, and so time again that time that they were able to quickly 
adapt and operate uh, or move quickly enough to offset what could have been a, a strategic uh, German victory was critically important. And then also taking it to a more modern uh, context, time played out in a very different way in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, which helped fuel the Taliban's success in the long run and the U.S.'s failure there. And so these elements, these, you know, these four things that I just highlighted, none of those um, operated outside of time. And time played a, a very critical element within the strategy and execution there. And so with all that said, I know I rambled a bit. Uh, Andrew Carr here has written two phenomenal papers over the past couple of years that I stumbled upon last year as I was doing research on time because I've written several smaller things on time. And I think that time is, is again, an underappreciated element of, of war. And so as I was doing some research, I came across uh, Professor, Professor Carr's papers here. So the in comparative uh, strategy, him and a co-author Benjamin Walsh published The Fabian Strategy, How to Trade Space for Time. And then in the Journal of Strategic Studies, he published uh, It's About Time, Strategy, and the Temporal Phenomenon. And so those two papers, I think, are phenomenal. And so after that long rambling introduction here, I'd just like to say, Andrew, thank you for agreeing to come on and talk to me today about time and, and how it fits within war. Well, thank you very much for having me, Ames. Pleasure to be on. I guess we'll get started here. I think the going back and reviewing your papers, and this is one of the lines that's always stuck with me after I read it. You wrote in uh, the, the Journal of Strate Strategic Studies article, time is fundamentally an ordering process and lack of continuity between waiting and understanding time is, uh, is critically important. And so what is it about, what is it about time and war and warfare that inspired you to write about the subject? I think time is a part of every kind of strategic conflict, every tactical, operational, you know, grand political uh, engagement. And yet when I started looking into this topic, I found that there's actually very little that's been been written on it. And so it was partly because I wanted to kind of get a better sense of what was going on and was kind of surprised that there wasn't much uh, engagement that led me to it. You know, at first, I just wanted to write an article about regional security here in Asia. And I noticed that there was a difference between those who advocated the deep engagement policy for America. And they said, look, you know, we have to focus on the here and now and reinforcing and supporting our allies. And that's really what's central. And the offshore balance argument, by contrast, said, look, today doesn't matter so much. And in fact, there's problems with our theories for how they would work today in terms of that withdrawal phase. But it's the long term that's really important, getting to that new and stable balance. And so I went, what they're really disagreeing with is how they think about time. And so going to look for a literature that would help me explain and give some framework to it led me to kind of see... There are some pockets of really interesting discussions of time, time horizons for how leaders think, the speed of war, and kind of that's a, a really important debate that's going on at the moment, but less efforts to kind of bring it all together to give us some framework compared to, say, geography, where we've got geostrategy and a whole wealth of you know geopolitical concepts. And in fact, a lot of the way that we talk about it is kind of going forwards and backwards in time is kind of spatial concepts that we've just imported into the temporal realm. Yeah. What is it? So when we talk about time, this is this is an interesting point, too, that you when you when you bring this because or when you bring this up, because I I've often heard, um, I would say just senior military leaders, but military leaders across the board 
say something to the effect of, and it's a, it's a, it's almost, I don't know if it's a, like a cliche born out of the global war on terrorism time period, or if they, if leaders thought differently before that time, but given my own experience in the, the realm that I've grown up in, uh, there's this cliche that, uh, you know, leaders are going to wait to the last possible moment to make a decision. And as somebody that's always been interested in time, I've always found that to be, uh, I'm trying to find a, a polite way to put it, a very bad idea. And I, I just curious if your research has shown, if, if A, if you've even delved into that aspect of time, and B, if you have, what has your research shown on that idea? I think there's a lot to that idea in that, you know, we're often kind of faced with multiple impulses that are kind of drawing us in different directions. And so you want to take the time to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. What I think actually is really remarkable at the moment is how much we've embraced the idea that the quick decision is better than kind of the mm-hmm. good decision tomorrow. And at a tactical level, that makes great sense. But yeah. we're increasingly talking in operational, even higher kind of strategic senses as if that's still the kind of determinate um, kind of way of thinking about time that you know time is this finite resource and whoever can use the less of it will win or get the greatest advantage that that's really the way you dominate time you know a lot of the discussion about ai and hypersonic Mm -hmm. missiles is based on well they go quicker they move faster therefore they will give a immediate obvious you know an unquestioned temporal advantage um, or when we look at, say, a conflict like, you know, potentially over Taiwan, there's yeah. this, this assumption that, well, it'll have to be a, a fader accompli style attack by the Chinese, right? Like, you know, they'll use their speed to grant them that legitimacy, to grant them that kind of authority that, you know, look how quickly they've been able to do it. And that will discourage anyone from, from challenging it. And I think there's real problems with that assumption that, you know, we just spend time and if you can spend less of it than your adversary, then you're, you have the opportunity and, and the advantage, you know, yeah. particularly at that higher strategic level. And in fact, I think we even saw an example of that with the start of last year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there clearly was this effort to decapitate the Ukrainian regime to kind of quickly seize Kiev. And they hadn't done the work. They hadn't prepared properly. And it left them quite overexposed. Their logistics were terrible in the early phases. They weren't able to sync up. They weren't able to respond when somewhat obvious moves by the Ukrainians were conducted, you know, breaking dams and destroying some key infrastructure. And that was explained a lot of the problems that the Russians had in that early phase is that they kind of assumed that, you know, this speed would just impress on the enemy. So I think the stories we tell about is today sped up. Do we have to just make decisions really rapidly? As you said, I think they carry on from previous eras, but we need to reassess, do they make sense in our current strategic context, but also in terms of some of the technological context that we're now moving into as well. Yeah, I think that's an important an important idea there. You see this problem emerge all the time in, in many different areas, and that's acknowledging the fact that there are differences in tactical operational and strategic levels and so something that some idea or some facet of doing something that may work at one level it may or may not scale and have the same type effect at the other level and so as you said you know operating quickly at the tactical level sometimes is you know a matter of life and death and so you've got to do that but you can't necessarily carry that through your career Uh, and when you're you know the guy with the stars on his collar leading the armies in the field, uh, you, that that idea doesn't necessarily translate. Something you may have learned as a young lieutenant on the battlefield may not necessarily 
um, be a good idea when you're a national security advisor or a theater commander or, you know, the, the, the Russian commander uh, leading leading the march to Kiev. And so that, I think, is a great point to, uh, to caveat to your second paper, which I don't know which one was first or second in the order that you wrote them, but in my, my list of uh, topics here, it's second. And so that's your, your, your paper on the Fabian strategy and so how to, how to, how to trade space for time. And I think that uh, that that point you just made about uh, Russia moving into Kiev is an excellent uh, point to uh, start with this discussion. So, I guess for everybody that's not familiar, uh, please explain what the Fabian strategy is, and perhaps give an example. I know you have several good examples in your paper. Thank you very much for your kind words. So, yeah. this was a paper that. Again, I had expected someone had already written. You know, I expected that it was such a well-known concept. Yeah. You know, the sitcom 30 Rock makes jokes about a Fabian strategy. There's like the British <laughs> socialist movement, the Fabians, right? Like it, everybody knows about it. And yet when I went looking for some literature on you know, what it was and how it worked, we found many historical examples, but very little kind of conceptual work that pulled it all together. And... The historians generally identify a couple of key campaigns as Fabian. So the first and classic one is the Second Punic Wars, Rome against Carthage, and you have Quintus Fabius Maximus, who's appointed dictator for a year and to lead the campaign against Hannibal in 218 BC. And his strategy of being the delayer, of kind of avoiding avoiding kind of battle with Hannibal, of kind of wearing him down, you know, was really criticized at the time. It was seen as cowardly and weak but it ultimately left Hannibal unable to achieve his um, key military and political objectives and kind of led to, in time, Roman victory in the Second Punic Wars. Much more recently, we have America's War of Independence in 1775 to to 83, where you have Washington starting in a somewhat conventional format and then realizing that's not going to work and then he's going to have to adapt. And and again, you know, his lieutenants such as Hamilton are really worried they're going to be called cowards for this kind of strategy. Um, But it seems to kind of work through them. Now, they don't follow it the whole way through. It's not just these insurgent attacks the whole way through. And I, we come back to that as a really important part of how Fabian strategy works. There's Russia's defeat of Napoleon in um, 1812, as you alluded to earlier. And then another kind of really recent one, perhaps more operational level, was uh, the German Field Marshal Heinrich von Manstein in 18, uh, 1943, rather, you know, operating across Ukraine, kind of an, an operational level Fabian strategy. Mm-hmm. And, Fabian strategy kind of in the popular camp ideas and a lot of the debates is often seen as this kind of very defensive, you know, you run away from the enemy, you avoid that battle, almost like an insurgent would, you know, you strike occasionally and then kind of get out of there. And we said, well, when we looked through these cases, we thought, actually, there's two real elements to it. First, there is this desire to, you know, achieve this material change over time on the battlefield. So you're trying to attract the enemy, you're also trying to exhaust them, and and they're slightly different kind of concepts there. So you're trying to wear down those forces, and not just wear them down so that eventually they give up and go home as an insurgent might, but you're wearing them down so that at a certain point in time, and the timing is really critical here, you actually switch to the offensive and launch a somewhat conventional campaign seeking a battlefield result and we said it's these two elements that really define a fabian strategy you realize you're the weaker power you try and wear them down you try and exhaust them but not so they run away but so that you can then achieve your conventional battlefield result 
And that's something that we certainly saw play out in, say, the American uh, success in the independence, the Russians kind of ending up back in Paris by 1814. And even in the original kind of Roman case, uh, somewhat ironically, Fabian's got the timing wrong. He said, oh, no, 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 we're still too weak. We're still not in the right position. And it was, in fact, Scipio Africanus who said, no, no, now's the time to strike against them. They're now weak enough. And he gets the credit for ending the Second Punic Wars against Fabian. But we still kind of give the name and the strategy to Fabian for initiating this approach in the first place. And if Fabian would have done his strategy correctly and not given all the glory to Scipio Africanus, but Del Hart would have written a book about him, you know, and then we would have had... <laughs> Uh, you know, that book. What is the difference between a Fabian strategy and positional warfare? Yeah, that's a really good conflict. I mean, I think a Fabian strategy is very much designed to take advantage of that geography. Mm -hmm. um, and it only works in very certain places. So, you know, it wouldn't work in the case of, say, Taiwan or Japan today. And yeah. in fact, you know, in my research, I came across a case of Australia in the Second World War, where very quickly in the kind of concerns about uh, Japan's attack, people said, oh, could we use a Fabian strategy? You know, this kind of shows how publicly understood it is. Yeah. And the Australians realized that it was, wasn't just just wasn't possible. Now, Australia is a vast continent, but almost all of its population centers and industry is located in this small belt along the southeast coast up against the Great Dividing Range. And so there's no way to kind of move it inland. And if the adversary attacks there, you're all kind of clustered in on those spots. So you have to have very advantageous geography to, to kind of make it sit, yeah, to make fall it work. Back, fall back on, yeah. But it's also a strategy that is partly defensive in those first phase and then partly offensive. And I think that's kind of what gives it that unique character as opposed to insurgent conflicts or as opposed to a more kind of conventional positional uh, approach. So... And finally, you know, it has to link in with a population that is willing to not mm. just accept the costs of this, but accept the sacrifices that a Fabian strategy implies. Yeah. Right? Like you can't just say, well, we're giving up part of our territory. We're trading space. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We're burning you actually Moscow. have to sacrifice that space, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you have to say, you know, we're getting rid of any foodstuffs, any infrastructure, anything that can give aid and support to the adversary. Um, you know, destroy all your crops, destroy all your infrastructure, make it as hostile as possible in order to achieve that first phase, that wear down of their material conditions through attrition and exhaustion. Mm. And then you can start to think about how do you then shift to the offensive and create that 
moment for a battlefield result. Um, and, and that's a really challenging part and one that every leader in the historical examples we looked at has struggled with and is worried about how the population responds to. And, yeah. and in some cases, populations haven't been supportive. And so it just wasn't possible. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this in your research or not. Is it, have you seen time be more important to the offense or to the defense? Or is it generally just kind of a, uh, a data point that's lost in, uh, lost in military operations? I think it works differently um, for each kind of phase. So, mm -hmm. you know, time is part of the reason why Clausewitz somewhat controversially argues that defense is the stronger form of war. Yep. He says, you know, these delays, the frictions, the impediments, the challenges that, you know, part of the nature of war actually feed to the advantage of the defender and kind of make them stronger over time. Whereas for the offense, that sense, and, you know, this is kind of dominates our thinking at the moment, um, quite indicatively, I, I'd say, you know, that, oh, if we can move rapidly, it will have a greater political impact. And so yeah. people point to, say, the fall of France in the face of Blitzkrieg in, in the Second World War and say, oh, it was the speed of the German conquest that actually led to the fall of France. And contemporary historians kind of challenge that that argument a bit these days. But, you know, I think there is certainly an added political significance to it. But there's also the, the larger part of it. And, you know, I've tried to bring in some of this in my research, although mainly kind of giving credit to work that, that others have done, which is a lot of time is about kind of the stories we tell, the narratives that are in place. Yeah. Who's the rising power? Who's the declining power? How are you using time to justify and legitimize your position? You know, are you acting in line with a historical tradition or is this kind of the demonstration of a new period, a new world order, you know, the end of history and those kind yeah. of concepts coming through? And then at even the operational level, how do we think about, you know, what actually leads to our success, right? Are we in an era of kind of rapid strikes to demonstrate our power and capacity as we were kind of for a lot of the war on terror? No. You know, get in, get out, demonstrate that legitimacy of the order and significance? Or is this actually, a, as I'd argue, we're now moving into an era of this great power competition, which is really about deterrence, about over the long term, kind of demonstrating we have the wherewithal and the capacity to sustain and can't kind of be fooled into rapid and, and foolish mistakes in the short term. Yeah, so that's the, the getting fooled, I think, is a good lead into the next question. You had written in the, in the Fabian strategy piece, uh, a Fabian strategy seems to require a great general who can, can, who can fulfill three criteria, judgment, timing, and standing. Uh, if you would please elaborate on that, because I think the great general part is, is, is terrific and fascinating at the same time. In some ways, it's the easy argument to how do you make a, a military strategy work? Well, you get a great general, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this is kind of in some ways the one of the failures of Clausewitz's works that he just says, oh, well, you know, hey, you just need a genius. General, but, yeah, that's right. yeah, the genius comes along and, and that solves a lot of your problems. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we tucked in behind Clausewitz for that's right. justifying our approach. I mean, one area I'd highlight is that idea of the judgment of, you know, when is the timing right for that shift from the attrition and the exhaustion yeah. phase through to seeking a conventional battle? And, you know, Fabian, we'd argue, got that timing wrong. But, you know, if you'd gone too early um, and certainly there was great pressure during the American War of Independence to try and go back to a conventional uh, approach and Washington had to try to resist that, a lot yep. of pressure. 
You know, we highlighted the way that you would be seen as a coward for avoiding battle, and that's certainly a challenge. And you know, modern militaries today, you know, there, particularly in the West, there is that concern with we don't want to just have a defensive approach. We don't want to just have a reactive approach, as they often see uh, defensive strategies. And so there's that desire to be on the offense, and that impedes kind of thinking clearly about a um, Fabian strategy. And finally, that idea of you know. Can you actually sacrifice territory? And that means that a general who really has that understanding of the policy of the people and what they will accept. And, you know, an example that kind of stood out to me going into this year was the Ukrainian leadership kind of insisting on trying to hold Bakhmut. And they yeah. believed you know, that it was worth the cost of the lives and the equipment rather than being seen to give up the um, territory. Now, that's perfectly legitimate. You know, I'm not questioning their choice yeah. of it. But I think it shows just how hard it is for a contemporary uh, leadership to be able to say, well, we're going to voluntarily sacrifice that even when it's being attacked, even when, you know, we're really losing the struggle to try and hold it because we think we want to sustain our resources, sustain our people um, and that we can kind of trade off that space and kind of build up another way or use that later on. And I think that's just kind of in, embodies just how difficult these kind of choices are because you're having to say, well, it's not just trading artificial space or abstract space. It's, yeah. no, no, this village and those people, sorry, we have to burn your house and everything you have. Yep. Hopefully one day we can win. Um, yeah. So that question of standing and, and the authority to make it work is pretty rare and yep. you know will require the whole population to buy in. And I think that's you know a, a real question for modern day militaries. Will you ever get that kind of buy-in outside of existential conflicts? Yeah, that uh, that highlights a something that I've seen. I think that is that is often overlooked as well. And that's time is different depending on what um, element of national power power you're looking at, and the clocks at all those levels run differently. But at the same time, they're working in unison with one another. And so you know, domestic time maybe much you know like in the vietnam war right there was quite a bit of uh outpouring uh a push against the war especially early on and so that domestic clock was running quite rapidly and then you know the military leaders on the ground though they they, they viewed the problem somewhat differently and from their own uh, military lens and their clock in their minds was running at a different pace and we saw something similar uh in, in iraq during the counter isis fight where you know, the political clock for the Iraqis was running far quicker than the political or military clock for the coalition. And so in the coalition headquarters, you know, we, we would start each day like uh, with a big stretch and a yawn and like, what are we going to do today? Whereas the Iraqis were whispering in our ears, hey, it's time to go, you know, and as, as uh, the Battle of Mosul concluded and the government of Iraq realized that the uh, Islamic State was no longer either capable or willing to stand and fight like they had in Mosul and prior to that in uh, Ramadi, that, that that Iraqi political clock was just flying at a rate that was off the rails. And so I think that that's just something that uh, across the board at whatever echelon, not echelon, whatever element you're working within, whether it's you know your domestic audience, you're the political audience, your military audience, everybody's clocks are running at a different speed. And I think that that's one way that you can whoever the you is in that, that situation, you can misjudge and misplay your hand uh, when it comes to balancing uh, time as it, as it relates to a conflict. 
I think that's just about it. Is there any other comments on time? Any other points on time? There was so, I mean, your, your articles are phenomenal and it was just, there's too much, there's just, there's too much uh, to talk about all of that, all of it at once. So is there anything that we missed uh, in our discussion that you'd like to hit on before we close out? Well, thank you very much for the very generous comments. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, and I really want to, kind of reinforce and, and support your, what you've just said about, you know, people operating at different times, even within kind of alliances and coalitions. Yeah. You know, time is not the same for everyone. How we value it is not the same for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's tied to our broader political ideals, our values. And that's kind of the part that really needs to be understood. Like, I think a lot of the debate about time at the tactical level, they're right that, you know, it's speeding up and computers and, and different yeah. systems will have a significance, but we can't just see it at that physical level. And I really got into the work of John Boyd over the last few years, mm-hmm. kind of as part of my thinking about time, because he's one of the few who really have. Yeah. And it's quite noticeable how his work, which is, I'd say, argue quite sensitive to different ideas of time and, and really quite thoughtful on this, has been taken by everyone just to be, I'll oh, just go fast, right? Like you oh, go yeah. through that OODA loop, observe, <laughs> orient, decide, act. You know, so William, Lind, you one, <laughs> William Lind, one of his great supporters, like even drops one of the O's, orientation phase. It's like just observe, decide, act. And, you know, you listen to Boyd and, you know, I've gone through his 10 hour um, yes, presentation, sports, which people yeah. thankfully put up on YouTube, which are brilliant, but, you know, it was a long day at the office. Um, <laughs> But you go, you go through it and Boyd's like, no, no, this is the most, orientation is the most important phase and it's the slowest one because yeah. you're actually trying to work out like what exactly is going on. Like how do you understand, how do you relate to the adversary and their choices? So, you know, I think we really do need to pay a lot of attention to that. And if I can end on, on this point, like I think a lot of the ideas and a lot of the focus on speed and, you know, the value of new technology in this way I think is somewhat of a holdover from what happened in the war on terror, right? Like in the late Cold War period, going into the war on terror, the general idea of a lot of US and and Western strategy, you know, whether it's the joint operational access concept, multi-domain maneuver, you know, these kind of ideas is you open a a window in the adversary's defensive capabilities, penetrate at high speed, achieve some objective, and then you get out. And that made great sense when the US has this material technological superiority dealing with kind of lower level significant conflicts. But I don't think that works when we're under a mature precision strike regimes, you know, particularly what we're seeing here with, with China in, in Asia. And you're starting to see the evolution, you know, the Marines, Marine Corps in the US, the Royal Marines in um, the UK, Australia's army is kind of starting to think about, well, how might you actually kind of live within uh, adversary's kind of weapon engagement zone? How yeah. do you have this kind of long-term deterrence effort where you're not going to be able to just kind of penetrate and then get out? You might have to kind of operate within this for a during period. You might still try and do that for parts of the fleet, but, you know, the Marine stand-in forces is this idea that we're actually going to have to kind of operate in a very different way. And then, you know, the technological and industrial basis that enables you to sustain these long grinding attritional conflicts that the US China go to war, it's a decade conflict potentially. Um, And so just a very different type of environment, a very different type of um, way of thinking about kind of what conflicts will look like because the adversaries changed, the strategic environment has changed. And so I'd argue, you know, the temporal domain changes. And that's really what separates it from the geographic space. 
you know, we reinterpret geography based on our technology and our things, but it's it's largely as it is. We mm-hmm. just value it slightly differently. The temporal domain, its peaks and its valleys, its rivers and its contours all relate to the strategic environment. How do we understand what the contest is, what it's about, what we're going in for? And that then shapes, do we act fast, do we act slow, and, and how time kind of accrues to the offender or the defender. And so that's kind of needs to be rethought in each era. And I worry that we've been kind of str- smuggling in a lot of ideas that worked quite well in the kind of war on terror phase, and they're still at work in a lot of our thinking today as we kind of enter this new potentially great power conflict phase. Yeah, I think that uh, that also, to me, brings up a couple of ideas um, as well. And so some of that is, you know, force design, you know, we've built these formations that are, um, I'm using the Royal, we, uh, Western, Western forces generally, I would say are built with very thin margins, uh, under, under the maybe even unspoken assumption that, uh, wars are going to be, uh, quick and easy, not easy necessarily, but quick, right. We're going to be able to go in and do exactly what you said, strike, penetrate, get in, get out. And that'll be that. And so there's significant force design considerations that have to be taken into effect when we think about time and if we're thinking about time correctly. And then as part of that too, material uh, considerations and weapon system considerations, because again, as you said, in this uh, potential scenario with China, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to get by with uh, very small formations that can't take a punch and continue fighting. Right. Cause then, you know, you talk about time, if you get a formation uh, bogged down, because it's it's uh, got insufficient uh, combat power to take a punch and continue moving and continue fighting, uh, that's gonna con- that's gonna eat into your own time, and so we have to think about force. I don't know even what the right term is, depth, right? So larger formations, not smaller formations necessarily, but then also formations uh, that can be sequenced in over time as you get into this long drawn out um, conflict. And so those are some of the things based off your last comment there that I think are important considerations. And I think that uh, we would all learn uh, a little bit more about uh, how to think strategically if we all got a copy of those two papers that you published. So I'm going to put those in the show notes. So hopefully folks go in, go in there and download those and, and spend some time thinking about time because I think they're very, very important. So with that, uh, we're wrapping up here. Is there anything that you're working on now that you'd like to uh, uh, to tell us about? Anything you'd like to share? Uh, being brought in on an interesting project here in Australia where we're looking at a history of our defense white papers and trying to work out how you do strategic guidance properly and restore some of that corporate memory. And I find it remarkable that for all that we pay attention to, you know, the big national defense strategies and those kind of big guidance papers, there's actually a very small literature on them. Uh, it's part of a broader problem that we don't actually have much defense studies. So that's a, a project that's occupying my time. And it's one where we're trying to kind of work out, you know, how do you actually set up structures for analyzing, but also creating guidance and, and especially kind of public guidance that can help the kind of wider citizens understand what's going on and the kind of costs and challenges they're going to need to engage with. So um, that's a, a multi-year project, but it's a, a fascinating kind of look behind the scenes that how defense planning actually operates. Well, if any of that uh, becomes open source and published, uh, feel free to send me the information too, and I'll put that in the show notes so that whenever whoever listens to this down the road, uh, that'll be there as well that they can look at. 
so with that, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. It's been a delightful conversation, and, and I'm not kidding. Absolutely love those papers. Uh, they had me uh, totally, totally nerding out and digging out my Robert Leonard Fighting by Minutes book uh, to cross-reference a bunch of stuff you were saying. So thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to chat with you.